We are beginning today a series in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter from the Apostle Paul. I'm going to be in Colossians, Lord willing, until mid-October. And so what I want to do right here at the beginning is I want to tell you, first of all, why the book of Colossians was written, who it was written to, and what was going on, so you know what's going on as we read this. Secondly, I want to talk about why now. Why now study Colossians? Why, in my opinion, this is the time to talk about this? And then we'll start... We'll read the scripture, and we'll get into what it tells us to do. Okay, so that's kind of your roadmap. What is Colossians about? Colossae was a a Greek city in biblical times. It was not a prominent city, unlike most of the cities that Paul wrote letters to. In fact, we don't have any record of Paul ever going to Colossae. There's there's a chance that he never went there. So he didn't know these people, most, most of them, that he was writing to. But what happened was the pastor of that church, a man named Epaphras, you're going to hear his name mentioned in the passage we're going to read. Epaphras visited Paul who was in prison, in prison for the sake of the gospel. And he told him, Paul, here's what's going on in my church. Church is going great. The people are wonderful. They love the Lord. They are serving him faithfully. But, but there's a false teaching that is spreading in my congregation and I don't know how to stop it. Now, if you read the New Testament, you see that was, that's a common theme. That's something we are warned about. And so we should always be on the lookout for false teaching to creep in unaware. And oftentimes, and I think that's the case in Colossae, it sounds true. It's just slightly off-center. It, there's enough ring of truth to it that we think, oh, well, that's the gospel too. But it's not. And so you have to know the truth. The truth will set you free. Interestingly, when Paul hears this and he writes this letter to the church for Epaphras to read to his congregation, he doesn't go after the people and say, how can you buy into this nonsense? That's what he does to the Galatians. He doesn't go after the false teachers either and say, well, you guys are going to stand judgment someday, so straighten out. Instead, he says, listen, let's just get back to putting Jesus first. Or as it says in verse 18, we'll read this next week, so that he might be preeminent. Preeminent isn't a word that we use a lot today. I I dare say that if you go out using that word a lot, people are going to think you're a little little high and mighty, right? But it means to put something first, to make something the unquestioned champion of your life. And that's what Jesus demands to be. Now, here's, here's what I want to say about why I'm preaching this series now. Preaching this series now because, in my opinion, the American Christian church does not make Jesus preeminent for the most part. I think individually we as Christians are not good at making Jesus preeminent. And don't, I'm not questioning anybody's salvation. doesn't matter if I am. I'm not, I'm not in a position to judge anybody. What I am saying is that if we did make Jesus preeminent in American churches, things would be different. I see signs that we don't put him first. Don't get me wrong. I love American Christians. I love love the Christians in this nation. They're my favorite people. And in my opinion, in spite of all the bad press, the, the church in this country still does more good than any institution or organization you can name. But let me tell you five signs, and this is just me. This is not the Bible yet. Five signs that I see that we are not putting Jesus first in our churches. Number one, We lack generosity. 
Now, I don't know who gives what in this church, and I know that I and my family are well provided for, so this isn't any kind of personal complaint. I just know that churches struggle. They struggle to find volunteers for ministry. They struggle to find resources to, to do ministry, and that should never be in a country as affluent as ours with as many professing Christians as we have. Churches shouldn't even have to ask for giving, shouldn't even have to ask for volunteers. We should be so excited to give of our resources and our time and our giftedness to the Lord's work that churches should be overflowing with resources. Number two, we don't love lost people. Not, not the way we should. And you can hear it in our complaints. Because we all do this. We all complain about our churches. Let's just face it. Don't, don't pretend. We all, we all have bones to pick and we all have uh, issues with our churches. And, and let's not even talk about First Baptist because in my opinion, this isn't uh, an especially complaining kind of church. Thank God. But think about when you're talking to your friends who go to other churches. What do they complain about? What do we as American Christians tend to complain about? We complain that things aren't the way we want them to be. We, we complain that my needs aren't being fully met. You know, we visited this other church and they had this really cool playground and my kids wanted to play there. I wish our church had that. And our church sings these songs that I don't even like. And the preacher, when he preaches, I'm not sure it really connects with my life. And, you know, we sound like somebody who just went to a restaurant and said, man, my, my steak was lukewarm when it came out of the kitchen. It's all about us. And don't get me wrong. There, there are times when you should bring up ways the church is letting you down. If, if your life is falling apart and the church isn't bearing your burdens with you, it, as I've said many, many times, if I'm preaching and, and you hear something and you say, Jeff, I don't even think that's biblical, you need to speak up. So this is not me saying never has heard a discouraging word. But if Jesus was preeminent, we would not complain about those things. We would comp complain about the fact that we don't see people getting saved often enough that the, the waters in, those Baptist, in that baptistry up behind me, they're not full every Sunday. They're not, they're not full of people coming to declare, I have, I have been born again with new life through Jesus Christ. You should be complaining about the fact that when you look around this room, almost everybody looks like me. When we live in a, a society full of people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue, and they all need the gospel, the foreign mission field has come here, and we're wasting that opportunity. Because otherwise, they'd be hearing the gospel and getting saved. We don't care about those things as much as we care about the fact that I didn't enjoy this as much as I wanted to. Now, some of you right now are saying, Jeff, you need to go back on sabbatical because you're in a bad mood and I don't like it. I'll try to be better. But number three, we're not serious about our sin. There are two things that every Christian should know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Number one, that you are loved more than you can possibly imagine, loved so much that God became a man named Jesus and died in your place, which means that God loves you more than life itself. So no Christian should ever lack for self-confidence or self-esteem, but no Christian should ever be self-righteous either. Because the other thing that every Christian should know beyond a shadow of a doubt is, my life is so riddled with sin, God had to send his son to die for me. And that sin is still there, even though it's been redeemed and forgiven. I'm not who I need to be. And we ought to constantly have a list of, of sins that we're working on. Not guilt and shame. Those things should be gone because of the cross. But that sense that I'm not content with who I am. I want to be more like Christ. We should hate our own sin. We shouldn't even be aware of the sin of others because we're so focused on our own. Number four, we're not joyful people. 
And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because this is part of the message later on that we'll talk about, but Jesus made it clear. God's word makes it clear. God's people should be joyful. We should be people who bring joy with us everywhere we go. And that's not our reputation. And then number five, we're not attracting those who are far from God. And I probably could have just said this one and it would have been enough because when you read the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are the people who are most drawn to Jesus? Who are the ones who flocked to him? Who were most loyal to him? They were the people who polite society had rejected. They were the people who weren't welcome in the synagogues. They were the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the quote-unquote sinners. And sad to say, those same people today, you won't find them in most American churches. They wouldn't be caught dead there. Churches are doing a great job of reaching people like me who were born in a good church going home and learned all the rules and learned how to follow the rules. You know, the socially conservative, button-down types. We're good at reaching them. But what about the people who are most drawn to Jesus? The fact that they're not coming to churches today means to me they're not seeing Jesus in us because we're not making Jesus preeminent. So what do we do? That's what the book of Colossians is about, is putting him first. And it starts, like most of Paul's letters, with a prayer for the people he's writing to. And whenever you read a prayer in the scriptures from one of the apostles or from Christ, you, you know that what it's telling you is, first of all, this is a good way for you to pray. But secondly, and even more importantly, you're saying, this is the heart of God. Because that's the Holy Spirit speaking to an apostle or to Jesus himself and saying, here's what I want you to pray for these people. This is what God wants for us. So let's read together Colossians 1, verse 1. I, I want to challenge you to start a new habit if you don't already do this, to have a Bible on your lap, whether it's the one in the pew in front of you or one you bring from home or one on your smartphone. I give you permission, young people, old people, middle-aged people, to have your smartphone open and, and to have the Bible open on it. Okay, so Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light." So you see in verse 10, the whole thrust of Paul's prayer. What is he praying for the people? He's praying that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now you probably know this, you're smart people, but I'm going to say it anyway. When the New Testament uses the term walk in that context, it doesn't refer to the way in which you put one foot in front of the other. It's talking about the way you live. Peripatasso, the Greek word for walk, can mean both to physically move your body, but it can also mean how you live as a metaphor. 
And it's a great one. I want you to think about a farmer who's walking through a field that's just been plowed. Some of you grew up on farms or around farms. You know what I'm talking about. That dirt is soft. And so every step he takes, his foot sinks two or three inches and leaves a very distinct footprint. Now imagine that this farmer has an eight-year-old daughter who's walking behind her dad and she wants to be like her dad. And so she's trying to match his steps, but she can't because he's six foot tall and and she's about half as tall as he is and her legs won't stretch. And so she's, she's jumping from footstep to footstep. And even so, she can't quite get there. And she's leaving her own tracks instead of his. Her hope, her goal is that as she grows up, she'll grow into a tall woman who can match her father step for step. And that's a picture of us. There's a way that God walks through the world. We see it in the life of Jesus in the four Gospels. And we don't match that stride, do we? Those of us who try, who jump with all of our hearts, we still don't make it. And most of us, let's be honest, we don't really try that hard. And so we're leaving our own tracks And the world sees that instead of the path of our Savior. But the hope, the prayer is that we would grow, that our spiritual legs would lengthen, that we would be able to walk like Jesus walks, to walk in his footsteps so the world would see him. And that's what happens when we make him preeminent. Now, what does that look like? There are four things that Paul lists as components of what it means to walk in a way worthy of the Lord. There are four, okay, We're starting school again, right? So here's your grammar lessons. There are four participles. Are you impressed? I had to look that up. Participles are I-N-G words. Four I-N-G words that tell us what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the first one says, bearing fruit in every good work. Can you remember when you were little, what you wanted to be when you grew up? When I was a little boy, I wanted to be an NFL quarterback. Thank you for not laughing. You're the first first of our three services that didn't burst into laughter. Um, By the time I was a teenager and I was firmly planted on the bench on my football team, I realized that the NFL probably wasn't going to call. And so I came up with a different plan. But still, my goal was to be famous. It's embarrassing for me to admit this now, but when I was a teenager, my dream was that somehow, some way, Everybody who grew up with me would say, oh, I knew him back when. Then when I was 21 and newly married, the Lord called me into the ministry. It was not something I expected, but it was very clear that's what he was calling me to do. And I remember just telling him, Lord, wherever you send me, I'll go. Wherever you want me to do, I'll do. If you want me to preach to a a congregation of, of five people in Nome, Alaska, I'll go because I just want to serve you. But there was still that little voice inside my head, that unredeemed part of my spirit that said, yeah, but if you play your cards right, you'll be famous still. You'll be a famous preacher. You'll you'll pastor some big, big, big church and everybody will know your name. Like that's the goal. And I remember coming across Ephesians 2.10. I'd read it before, but it finally stuck out to me and became my favorite verse of scripture. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that's when I came to understand that my significance as a human being doesn't depend on whether people know my name. Because I'm significant because God created me and redeemed me. And I'm his workmanship, his masterpiece, and so are you. 
And so success is not anything that you can put on a resume or anything that impresses people. Success is found when we do those good works that he prepared before we were ever born for us to do. So that meant that me being successful as a pastor, as a father, as a man, as a husband, had nothing to do with earthly things, but it had to do with a million different good deeds that God had planned before I was born, most of which people would never see or celebrate. That's true of me and you both. How do you know what good deeds God prepared ahead of time? Well, that's where the bearing fruit part comes in. Whenever the New Testament uses that term, bearing fruit, it's talking about character. And the lesson of the New Testament is, it's not what you do that matters, it's who you become. It's not what you're accomplishing, it's who you are becoming in Christ. And Jesus wrote, Jesus didn't write, he said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to become the person you were created to be, that is to bear fruit like love and joy and peace and patience. You can't just try hard because it doesn't work. A peach tree doesn't have to try to produce peaches. A watermelon vine doesn't have to work hard to produce watermelons. If they're in good soil, if they're getting enough sunlight, if they're getting enough water, they're going to bear fruit. It's the same for us as Christians. If we have made Jesus preeminent, that is, if we're abiding in him, then those things will happen. And as we grow, as we're bearing fruit, we'll start to notice people around us who are struggling, who are suffering, who are are having a hard time, and we're going to know That's no accident that I noticed this. I need to go to them and do what I can to help them, whether that's meet their needs, whether that's help them find a job where I work, whether that's pray for them, whether that's share the gospel with them, but that is my responsibility. Bearing fruit in good work, that's what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of God. But then secondly, the second ING word is increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. I'm going to read you a quote from a famous preacher, and I'm going to ask you to, in your head, try to guess what era, what period of history that preacher lived in. Okay? So here it is. Here's the quote. The lack of scriptural knowledge is the root of all evils in the church. Does that sound like something a preacher today would say? What about maybe the 20th century, somebody like Billy Graham? Do you think he said that? Or maybe the 1800s during the Second Great Awakening. Maybe somebody like D.L. Moody or, or Spurgeon. Actually, you've got to go much, much further back than that. That, that, that sentence was spoken by John Chrysostom, the, the most famous preacher in the world in the 4th century A.D. So just a handful of centuries after Jesus himself walked, when the church was still new, when the church was still not even the official religion of the Roman Empire, Already the leaders of the church were upset about how few of God's people were reading his word. And it's still true today that we as God's people would outsource our relationship with God. That's got to make the devil very, very happy. Because he can't steal our salvation. He can't snatch us out of the Father's hand. But if he can convince us that we are incapable of understanding the scriptures, 
He has won a significant victory. And let me tell you something. You are intelligent people. You people are able to do things that just blow my mind. Some of you are able to make things. Some of you are able to fix things. Some of you are able to solve problems, lead companies. You do any number of incredible things with your minds that God gave you. And yet somehow you think that this book is impenetrable to you. And so you think, well, I guess the best I can do is just show up on Sundays and, you know, he went to seminary. I'm sure he knows what to say. I'll I'll let him tell me about God, which makes about as much sense as saying, I'm really, really hungry. I think I'll go to a steakhouse and ask the chef to describe what it feels like to chew and swallow a filet mignon. Why would we settle for this? And God is right there wanting to know us. He's written us this incredible letter just for our own hearts Get into the word for yourself. Increase in the knowledge of him daily. That's what it means to walk in a way worthy of him. And I know some of you would say, Jeff, I've tried that and I couldn't do it. I tried. I hit Leviticus. I died. It's just not going to work. Come talk to us, one of us on staff. Talk to your life group leader. Talk to another Christian who you know reads the word. Or you could just do what I did when I was before ministry. Just start with the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter one, read a chapter a day. By the time you get to Revelation 22, you will be, you will sort of have an idea of the rhythm of scripture and you'll be able to read with more fluency. And even on days when you read and you get finished and you think, okay, I don't know what that meant. God's still using it to change your heart and your mind. Increase in the knowledge of God. Number three. To walk in a way worthy of God means being strengthened with all power. And when Paul writes that, he's not talking about the power to walk on water or raise the dead. Because he goes on to say, strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. Because Paul, among all people, above all people, understood how hard it is to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't believe in him. Now, we as Americans, when I was a kid, when I was uh, being raised up, um, Christians in this country still had kind of a privileged cultural position. There was some cachet to being a Christian. It got you places. That's no longer the case in most sectors of society. And so while we're not nearly as marginalized as the people in Colossae 2,000 years ago, we're, getting, we're starting to taste what it feels like to be treated as if we're weird because we follow Jesus Christ. And whenever that happens, there are two ways we naturally want to respond. One of two ways. Either either we want to say, okay, well, I I don't need this kind of pressure. I'm going to walk away from my faith, or at least I'm going to downplay it and not let anybody know. That's one option people follow. The other option is to respond with anger. And since we live in such an outraged, focused culture, that's the way a lot of us tend to respond with hate for hate, with insult for insult. Paul says, that's not the way. I want you to pray for the power of God to come upon you so that you can show a supernatural endurance and patience towards people who are nothing but hateful to you to the extent that they are eventually ashamed of how they've treated you. And they start to think, my goodness, what is with these people? I don't believe what they believe. I don't agree with what they say, but I wish I were more like them. I wish more people were like them. How can they show me such love? How can they show me such kindness? How can they be so peaceful and patient? What's the Spirit 
If you want to hear one lesson from my sabbatical, one of the things God convicted me of is my own prayerlessness as an individual Christian and as the pastor of this church. Because I know, I know many of you are prayer warriors and I'm thankful, but as a church, we don't pray like we should. How arrogant and how foolish do we have to, have to be to think that what it takes is another sermon, another strategy, another program. And listen, I'm going to pre- keep preaching the gospel for 30 minutes every Sunday, three times. Uh, we're going to keep having planning meetings and strategies, and we're going to have budgets and all that's necessary. But don't you understand that none of that will change anybody's life without the power of God? That if anything good happens at First Baptist Conroe, it's not because of anything I've said or anything we've done. It's because we prayed to God and he answered. So my pledge to you, if you want to know how things are going to be different in this second season of my life as pastor of this church, as long as I'm here, we're going to be more focused on getting us together to pray in different ways to pray and call upon God's power because that's what's needed. Definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Well, the results are going to happen when we pray more. It's as simple as that. Number four. To walk in a manner worthy of God means giving thanks with joy. And then these whole 12 verses that we read a moment ago, my favorite two words are the words with joy. It says giving thanks with joy or with joy giving thanks. And I love that because it, it goes against our, our, the way we secretly think about righteousness. See, I'm glad that the Bible doesn't say that the ideal Christian is this, is this big-bellied, red-faced guy in a starched shirt who's got all your sins diagnosed and all his sins figured out. I'm glad it's not a, a woman with a bun on the back of her head so tight she literally has her eyes squinted, who looks like she was suckled on a lemon when she was an infant, who is angry all the time, mostly because she thinks someone somewhere might be having fun. That's the image of Christianity that we often see. And it's not in the scriptures. Instead, the Bible says God's people should be people of joy. doesn't mean we don't get upset sometimes. We don't, ha- we don't shed tears sometimes because we do. But even in the midst of our sorrow, we have joy. It means that every one of God's people needs to be someone who brings light with them into the room. So that wherever you are, wherever you work, wherever you live, that is a happier place because you're there. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm quiet and shy, and that's fine. You can be as quiet as a mouse and still radiate joy. How do you do that? Paul says, with joy, giving thanks. Gratitude is highly underrated as a life-changing habit. And I want to recommend to you a habit that was taught to me many years ago through a sermon I heard and has made a difference in my life. You ready for this? It's not that radical. Anybody can do it, but I promise it'll change your life. The sermon back then said, everybody ought to give thanks to God for four things every day. He recommended before you go to bed. Before you go to bed at night, just sit, think back on your day and think, okay, what are four things I'm thankful for? 
And it could be four things that happened that day, or it could be four ongoing things, my kids, my spouse, my parents, my food, my body. But every day, as long as it's not the same thing every day, thank God for four things every day before you go to bed. Would you take that challenge? I think it's not going to be long before you realize there's a lot more that I have to be grateful for and rejoice in than I do to complain about, than I have to complain about. And then you're on the path to joy. Now, where does that leave us? See, you might be asking, why should I do these things? There's a right reason and a wrong reason. Why should you seek to bear fruit for God by abiding in Christ and seeking to do good works? Why should you establish a daily pattern of studying God's Word for yourself? Why should you pray for God's power to help us endure and persevere and change the world for good? Why should we take time every day to express thanks to God for the good things He's given us? If the answer to that question in your heart is, well, if I do those things, I bet God will love me more, that's wrong. That is the wrong answer. Because God already loves you so much that He literally died in your place. He loves you more than life. It is impossible for God to love you more. And because He died for you to win you back, He'll never love you any less. So that's not the reason. I'm just giving you absolution if you fell asleep and you slept through this whole sermon or if you are sitting there saying, yeah, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. God's still going to love you. So why do it? Because He does love you that much. You can trust that when he says this is the way to live, he knows what he's talking about and he means it for your good. You better believe that if he tells us to do these things, it's because he loves us and wants us to have a better life. So try it. See what it's like to work uh, with all your heart to make Jesus preeminent in everything you do, say, and think. You will never regret anything you give to the Savior of the world.